you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Now, each episode, we speak with authors and national faith leaders and advocates and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And today we are joined by John Blake, award-winning journalist at CNN and author of the celebrated book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. And let me just tell y'all, okay? So I like, I like open this book and immediately am like gripped and like sucked into John Blake's world. I am not able to stop turning pages. It is so good. I mean, I literally was not able to stop and it was more than I imagined, okay? So, so first of all, everybody's gotta read this book. Y'all gotta read this book. And I invited John to speak with us today because his story, okay? OMG. And the way that he tells it, O to the M to the G. You must know about it and you must read it. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, thread or Insta me at Lisa S. Harper or reach out to Freedom Road on Thread or Insta at freedomroad.us or catch us on Substack at Freedom Road. Okay, so child, we are all over the place. And hey, you know, keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. So, John, can we jump in? Let's jump in. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I am so excited to be in conversation with you today, especially after reading your book recently, because I was explaining before we jumped on here that I got the book a little late. And so I was powering through it, but it wasn't hard. I literally could not stop reading. Thank so you. I, oh, absolutely. I mean, my, my first question is, you know, is more than I imagined your first book? Because I went back and I looked and I found I found a book that was about the Beatles by a John Blake. <laughs> no, no. like 17 years old. <laughs> I know. I actually wrote a book back in 2004 called Children of the Movement. Um, oh. But that was a different type of book. It was about the children of the leading civil rights figures from the 60s, like the children of Malcolm X, Dr. King, Suckley Carmichael, as well as the children of people like George Wallace. But that was more of a journalist book. I never wrote a memoir. This is my first memoir. This is really, I mean, really, really beautiful. You are a beautiful Thank writer. You really you. are. Thank you. And memoir is rough, right? Because it oh, requires, yeah. right, that you, the writer, return to the scene Correct. and relive some of the most traumatic and also some of the most beautiful moments of your life. And you took us there. You really did. And I felt every clenched muscle in your body in Aunt Fanny's house. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Um, I was right there with you. I was right there with you when you woke up halfway through the night around 3 a.m. and saw somebody trifling through your drawers, some yeah. stranger. It was, it, was this hard for you to write? Yeah, so people told me before I wrote the book that if you write a memoir, you're going to remember things that you had repressed. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen because I remember everything. But it was so true that when I began to write this story, that all these memories that I had became flooding back. So, you know, my story briefly is a story about, I guess you would call it a story about race and faith. Uh, should I summarize it briefly? Does, would that yeah, help? go ahead. That's fine. Okay. So um, 
I was born in the mid sixties in a very notorious neighborhood in West Baltimore. Well, it's West Baltimore, Maryland. And um, I was born at a time when interracial marriage was illegal in Maryland and in much of the country. My father was black and my mother was a young white working class Irish woman. And so when I was born, my mom disappeared from my life not long after I was born. And no one told me why she disappeared. I had no memory of her except I, did, I couldn't even remember what she looked like. There was no picture of her around the house. I didn't know the sound of her voice. The only thing they told me was that your mom's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. So I grew up in this all black neighborhood knowing that there was this entire side of my white family that was incredibly racist, didn't want anything to do with me. But yet I was also growing up in this neighborhood where it was all black inner city and everybody seemed to dislike white people. So I grew up as what I call a closeted biracial person trying to hide my identity from other people because I didn't want to know. I was ashamed to have a white mom. So I just kind of grew up that. And the story is about how I reconnected with my mom and her family. Wow. And so let me ask you this. When you, because first of all, one of the things that you make really clear in your introduction is the setting, West Baltimore. You mm-hmm. kind of joke that people always ask you about The Wire. Is it really like that? Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, I was absolutely addicted to The Wire last summer. I literally consumed all five seasons in one summer. Uh, It's probably about three weeks because it was amazing to see all the different layers of what's going on in the city. But I think it's important people understand it's that neighborhood that you grew up in. Yeah, the neighborhood, uh, it is the least likely place that you would expect to hear a story about white and black people coming together despite racism. Because my neighborhood is a symbol of what goes wrong in America when when you can't deal with racism. It's very racially segregated, it's very poor, it's very violent. It was not only the setting for the HBO series, The Wire, but there was a huge uh, racial upheaval in 2015. Some people call it a protest, some people call it an uprising, some people call it a riot. But a young black man, named, black man named Freddie Gray died in police custody. So mm-hmm. the city was shut down for two weeks. And that happened literally where I grew up in the same neighborhood. And also, wow. if you remember, former President Trump picked on my neighborhood. He said it's one of the worst places in the world. So this is this neighborhood that is the symbol of how intractable racism seems to be in this country. And yet, mm-hmm. in this very same place, I was able to somehow form a relationship with these white members of my family who wanted nothing to do with me, who thought that white and black people should be kept apart, who called me a zebra child, I mean, all these things. And yet I was able to find a way and reconnect with them and to become family. So we are going to totally get to that in a little bit, but I really want to dive into, I want to, I want to know more about your father first (laughs) and a little bit about your context. So can you tell us about Clifton Blake? My father was a very kind of unusual man because he was born during the Great Depression, black man who grew up in a very segregated America. Mm-hmm. But yet at the same time, he lived with this sort of freedom that few black men of his era did. When I say freedom, I meant he did kind of what he wanted to do. Um, you could literally get killed as a black man for trying to openly date a white woman in the mid-60s in in Baltimore, yet that's what he did. Um, So he was very brave, and um, he didn't seem to live with this kind of fear or hatred of white people 
And I think a key to that was his job. He was a merchant marine, meaning he was a sailor. So he spent most of his time of sailing across the globe. So in post-World War II America, when, you know, he, he would... Uh, he would go to places like South America, Australia, you know, Russia. He wasn't treated like a black man for the most part overseas. He was treated as an American man. So he was afforded certain privileges and freedom. So he was accustomed to living with a certain kind of freedom and respect that a lot of black men didn't have. And also just being on a ship, being on a ship with white men at sea, it really didn't matter what color you were. It mattered, can I depend on you if there's a shipwreck, if we're attacked by German U-boats, for example. You know, he was in the convoys in World War II. So I tell people that the most integrated space for a black man in the mid-20th century was the deck of a merchant marine ship. And my father lived that, in that kind of life. And it makes sense then why he was so absent from your life, because yeah, he really was chasing freedom in a lot of ways, it seems. Yes, that's a very astute observation because there was a freedom he could experience overseas that he couldn't. When you're home and, you know, that era, there are indignities that you have to endure. Like, for example, when he first tried to date my mom, he tried to catch a cab from his neighborhood to her neighborhood. He could barely get a cab driver to take him there because they thought it was so dangerous. Mm. And when he did finally get there and knock on the door of my mom's house, her father answered the door, called him the N-word, physically assaulted him, and called the police on him and had him arrested. So that was the kind of experience he had to deal with when he was living in the States. But when you're abroad, when you're overseas, you're an American citizen, you have those dollars in your pocket. And he, was, he wasn't treated the same way. So he preferred being overseas, wow. being home, dealing with kids, and dealing with the dignities that a lot of Black people had to accept on those days. And you make it clear in your story um, that he would literally leave and then yeah. leave you with family members and non-family members. So you and your brother, Pat, became foster children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And oh, my gosh. I mean, that just. Clifton, I mean, seriously, as I'm reading, I'm reading your story, I'm just going. This, first of all, it must be a movie. So somebody who's listening, who is a movie maker, you got to make this a movie. And then secondly, we don't we don't tell these stories. So hearing this story from you, a celebrated CNN journalist, um, was honestly kind of like head turning. I, I, I felt like my head was exploding. Well, yeah, I spent most of my time in foster homes uh, during my youth. And these were very cruel places. There were places where. We weren't really, I had a younger, I have a younger brother who was with me. We're not even a year apart. And they were just very difficult places because we were just treated, we weren't even quite treated like human beings. We were just there. And mm-hmm. it was very lonely. So it was very difficult because my father was overseas and he would stay overseas about eight months out of the year. And then my mother, I, I didn't know where she was. So mm-hmm. I, there was a sense of being very alone all the time and very isolated, not feeling like I had a place in the world. But there's a psychologist I quote in my book, a guy named Gordon Allport, and he said Mm -hmm. something that really resonates with me. He said that love received and love given is the best form of therapy. So even though I was in that foster home all that time, during the weekends, I would stay with an aunt, my mother's sister, Aunt Sylvia. 
Hmm. And she was that surrogate mom that gave me that sense of stability and hope and belief that tomorrow will be better. So she, wow. that love she gave to me and to my younger brother, uh, what I say in the book is that she was like this uh, lighthouse in the sea of chaos. She was mm-hmm. that person that helped me believe that things would get better. Wow. So tell us about the day you were abducted. Well, that, that's, a, that's a memory. That's a, and I still don't quite know what happened. Um, one of the earliest memories I have is as a young kid, um, just being in my, you know, being in my father's house with the, my father's family, you know, just the black people on my father's side. But then suddenly there's this white couple who appear and take me to a field to fly a kite. And, and I'm, I remember feeling just this feeling of joy and happiness when I was with them and just seeing them. And then it was over. I, I, I returned home and they disappeared from my life. And I kept that white kite as a kind of a memorial to them. And I always wondered who that was. And what I think, who I think it was, I think it was my mom. I think, and this is something we can get into later. I would, I would discover later that my mom's is, uh, absence from my life was not voluntary. She didn't choose that. She had mm-hmm. to leave. And I feel like that was her way of saying goodbye. And I can just only imagine the pain of a mom who had just given birth to two sons coming to look at them one last time as she's saying goodbye. And I think that's what that moment was. So can you tell us a little bit more about your mom? Like, what did you discover about her that surprised you? So I, I grew up with my mom the first 17 years of my life, like knowing nothing about her, just her name and her family's hatred right. of black people. Mm-hmm. And for by the time I became a teenager, young man, I had pretty much resigned myself to not meeting her and not knowing her. And uh, then finally, one day, my father calls me to his bedroom. I'm 17 years old. I'm on my way to college. And he just says, uh, do you want to meet your mom? And it was like a bombshell because there was no preparation. That he didn't kind of ease up into the conversation. Wow. Three days later, I find myself, along with my younger brother, being driven to this menacing red brick building in the countryside of Maryland. And it looked so uh, intimidating, this building. It looked like the set for the Shawshank Redemption, if you've ever seen that movie. Oh. So, I'm guided into this room, waiting room with my brother, and we're waiting there, and I could hear people moaning in pain in the background in these distant hallways, but I could also hear some people like breaking out hysterical laughter, and it's still not, I'm still not figuring out where am I? And then a hospital orderly escorts this thin white woman into the room. She's wearing like these baggy clothes, look like they've been donated by Goodwill. And she looks at me and she looks at my brother, Patrick, and her eyes light up with joy. And she says, oh, boy, oh, boy, John. Oh, boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she half walks and shuffles to it and she hugs her, hugs me. And I don't know what to do because I had never even used the word mom before. So I didn't know I didn't know what to call her. But that was my mom. Now, what was so awkward about that is that it wasn't just awkward because that's the first time I met her. It was where I met her. I was in a waiting room of a mental institution. My mother had been confined to this mental institution for most of my life. So she suffered from this severe form of schizophrenia. And no one told us 
we didn't make that discovery until we were in the waiting room of that place. And one of the reasons I believe that they didn't tell us is because they didn't know how people didn't talk about mental illness that, you know, during those times. Sure enough, didn't they really did. Yeah. yeah. But one final thing I would say about that meeting is, but one of the things it did to me is it began to shift my racial attitudes because I had grown up in this world where everybody hated white people. And I thought that no white person could kind of understand what it meant to be black to suffer. But when I saw my mom there, I remember thinking, I've never seen a black person suffer like that. So she began to shift my you, racial I'm attitudes. Sorry, real quick. You never saw a black person suffer like that? You never saw a yeah. white person suffer like that? I never saw a black person suffer like that. The place where she was staying, they used to subject the, 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 mental, the, the patients to unwanted medical uh, experiments. They would chain them right. to the bed. You could feel the misery when you were there. And I had never seen this type of, I had never felt empathy for a white person until I That's saw it. her. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so she began to really shift my attitudes. And that mm. was the beginning. My God. Now, you know, it's funny because we actually, we've, we've spoken with disabled um, activists as well, right? So activists mm-hmm. in the disabled community. And one of the things that, that um, has become very clear to me and that was kind of a big aha moment in my conversations with them is that white supremacy at its root actually does not believe that disabled people are full human beings in the same way that they do not believe that black people are full human beings and women are full human beings. So in order to be a full human being, you have to be an able-bodied white man, according to Aristotle, right? So Aristotle was kind of the first person yeah, yeah. to kind of put that on paper, right? Or like to, to begin to talk about that in that way. And so that's at the heart of white supremacy. So it strikes me that you saw your mom's suffering from white supremacy in a weird way. This white woman is suffering from white supremacy. I've never heard someone talk about it that way. And that's very perceptive. And I have to add, I still don't know if racism wasn't a factor in her being confined to a mental institution. What I read is that Back in those days, we, you know, when interracial marriage was illegal, if it, my mom was a Catholic, she was a devout Roman Catholic. If a young white Catholic woman had biracial children and went off to a white man, what went off with a black man, that some of those women were confined to mental institutions and seen oh, yeah. as wayward women. And the place, the mental institution she went to was one that was originally designed for black people. So I don't know if her family sent her there as punishment we're having two black sons. So even racism reached into there, into this mental institution. Yeah. Oh my gosh. John, do you know the history of those first race laws in Maryland? Because it blew my mind when I learned them. I know the ones around the, the early 20th century, the ones that, oh. the, the housing, but you, you're talking about like a, a century or two before? Oh, no, no, no. So it actually, and we have we have something in common there too, the Dashels. There was a Dashel that actually wrote that law in the city council in Baltimore and one of my aunts, um, who was freed, she was uh, she was free and owned property um, in seventeen by seventeen fifty six. She lived next door to the Dashels. Wow! <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of history here. So, but no, I'm talking about sixteen sixty four. Tell me more about that, if you don't mind. I I do not mind. This is like literally one of the things as I was reading. I was like, there's so much intersection here with fortune. Um, so, so. 1662, we all know, Virginia passed its first race laws. And the problem they were trying to solve on the ground was white men 
raping enslaved black women and having mixed race children and what's going to be their status. Everybody knows mm-hmm. that, right? So, but then you, two years later, Maryland says, oh, well, we kind of like what they're doing over there to solve their race, their mixed race problem. But the problem that they perceived on the ground was different. It was not white men raping enslaved black women. Oh, that was something happening, but it was not their perceived issue they were trying to solve. The issue they were trying to solve in Maryland was white women marrying and having children with enslaved black men. Wow. Hello. There were 600 mixed race children that were born just um, in the in the colonial era alone, just in Maryland and Delaware alone. 600. All of them trace back to white women. That's fascinating. Was there also a concern that uh, like poor whites would also find solidarity with black people? Was that part of the reason behind some of the race laws or was that a- another time or later? I, that's another, that's a little bit, that's forward. That's actually, as as far as I understand, that is after the Civil War. Um, yeah. But this is what they were thinking women, women will find solidarity because women, this is their family. So guess what they did in this first race law? John, you will understand your family better, your mom better once you understand this. You know what they said? They said, we hereby create a law that says if any white woman marries an enslaved black man and has their children, she too will be enslaved by his master until his until her husband's death and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity that was the very first race law in maryland and of course you know within about 20 years it had morphed several times because you know they're working it out how it's going to work out and also because lord baltimore brought um uh they called her irish nell um one of his servants who fell in love with um a black man um charles charles butler and said, can I please marry him? I want to marry him. And next thing you know, she's like, can, so he changed the law for her. So by mm-hmm. 1681, no longer would they be enslaved. And then it changed again, just in time for my ancestor, Fortune Game McGee, to be indentured as penalty for her white mother's affair with her black father. That's some fascinating history, how they made white women pay for seeing black people as human beings. Yes. And that relates so much to my mom because her family disowned her. And it's it's weird. I heard these stories about how she would walk over to the black neighborhood in Baltimore, this young white woman. She was 19 years old. No, 20 years old. And black people would be on the steps, like looking at her, like, what is she doing here? Like, why is she there? And I remember people in my family said that she had this kind of ease with black people that they couldn't understand she wasn't looking over her shoulder she wasn't afraid but her family hated that they couldn't understand why she was like that and Mm -hmm. uh, they made her pay these are our stories you're listening to the freedom road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice So, John, one of the things that is so striking about your story is that usually memoirs are so focused on the individual, 
that they lack curiosity actually about the policies that created the environment that the individual the individual lives in. And that is not so with more than I imagined, right? And that's another reason why I really related to it because that's a lot of what I did in my own memoir of my family story was making those connections. And you do that so seamlessly. Um, so as we follow your story, we're also learning a lot about the history and current outworkings of the racialized structures and systems at play in our nation. And that's a rare gift because it grounds our conversation about race in our stories and it grounds our stories in the larger story of race in our world. So you did this, you, you know, you connected the dots and I, I wondered, I mean, what was it like for you to revisit the scenes of your childhood and then add the layer of understanding with all the racial politics that was happening in the era? I mean, we don't grow up understanding the larger forces that are creating our lives, that are helping to shape our lives. But in order to do this work, you had to go back and do that. What was that like to see those layers? Well, thank you for that compliment. You're one of the few people who really noticed that. And that's really important to me. And that's my background as a journalist, mm -hmm. because we're never just people acting in isolation. We're always acting within a historical context. So, for example, I wanted Baltimore, my neighborhood, to be almost like a secondary character in the book. I hear mm -hmm. so many people talk about how awful it is in West Baltimore, but I rarely see stories that really go into why it's like that. You know, the policy decisions that were made years ago that created that world. So that's what I was trying to do as a journalist to always give that kind of context. And to answer your question, it was illuminating because I learned things about my neighborhood. I learned things about, say, an issue like integration that I never knew before. I give you an example. Yeah. I talk in the book about how shocking it was for me to go to Howard University. So Howard University, for those who don't know, is like an elite Elite Black University. Uh, Kamala Harris, for example, was one of my classmates when I went there. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah. So wow. when I went there and coming from this, you know, this really impoverished neighborhood in West Baltimore and to go there when I'm surrounded by all these elite black people who come from places where they have pools and maids, that was a big shock for me. And one wow. of the things I learned when I would look at their yearbooks of my classmates is that they all went to these really beautiful high schools that looked like college campuses. And almost all those schools were integrated. They had all these white classmates. They grew up with white people. They were not intimidated or afraid of white people. They came from more integrated settings. And these wow. students invariably were just so much more smarter. They were more poised. They, they had this leg up on me. And so to get context to that, I did some research and I discovered that when I went to Howard, in the, the mid 1980s, that was the end of this golden era of integration from around from 1988 to probably like early 70s. What I mean by that is that was that period in our country's history where we were earnestly trying to create integrated schools. And we know about Boston and some of the resistance. Yeah, but during right. that time, there were all these other success stories that never got the, the, the publicity or the press. And the test scores between black and white students converged in a way that they have never had or never since. They really converged. And white test scores didn't go down. Black test scores almost became in parity. And so much of that was because of integration. And when I say integration, it wasn't just about black students sitting next to white students in classrooms. 
like magically they would be better people. It was the access to the resources of these white schools. Right. That was the thing that was key. And that really helped. So I put that there to explain, you know, just I, that's when I realized how racially segregated Baltimore was, how awful those schools were I went to. So much of it was because they weren't integrated. They didn't have the same resources that my classmates at Howard. And so it was a thrill to share that throughout the story because I think it gives depth to a story. It really does. And it gives texture, right? Like yeah. we, we begin to understand, honestly, we understand you better because of your context. And like you had to overcome things that we never would have, I never would have known. I never would have known um, had I not understood the policies that have shaped um, your experience. You know, and that, that thing about integration, I mean, obviously there are arguments against it because in many cases when there was integration, white teachers did not actually right. teach black students. And so, but I think what, what I love about what you're emphasizing is the access. Mm-hmm. It's access to resources. My mom went to a school here, like literally one block from where I live in South Philly, and it was not integrated. It was a black school and in the fifties and sixties, early sixties. And, um, and, it was a black school, even though there was a white school two blocks away, like literally two blocks away, there was a white school, but she couldn't go to that, which had all the resources And her black school got hand-me-down books from the white school that had already yeah. been used for two and three generations. So I, I really do resonate with you there. Can I ask you, this is another question, actually. Um, it has to do with Aunt Fanny. Her gulag, yeah. as you call it, she, <laughs> yeah, yeah. she had a gulag and you were stuck in it and it was not funny at all. Um, yeah. But you tell us about tell us about your discovery that you had agency. Agency you mean, that you walked out. That was actually, Lisa, that was one of those memories that I repressed mm. because I was so agency. terrified. Yeah, I was so uh, I was so afraid when I did it that I have forgotten about it until both of my brothers, my younger brother, and then I have an older brother who's a half brother, reminded me that I did that. So um, for I'm, I'm in this foster home and I'm, I'm suffering with my younger brother. And when I get around about 12 years old, I just realize that um, I just can't go on like this. I mean, and so I have to do something about it. And so what I did is I gathered my younger brother and I said, we're leaving. And I just ran away. And wait, I just love how you literally told him, we're going home. And what did he do? He did not even bat an eye. He just went to his drawer and started just cracking his stuff. Oh, because I was his older brother. He did what I told him. I was his protector. And so he, and he, it's funny how we both went through the same experience, but it, it meant different things. Like I was much angrier than he was. I had so many more questions, but he told me he didn't really ask a lot of questions because as long as he saw me near him, he felt safe. But being the oldest person, I felt like I had all these questions. I had to do something. And so it was just a way to survive that environment. I ran away because I knew that my older, I had an older brother that had moved into this house and that if I showed up in his door, that perhaps he would take me in. But it's just one of those survival things you do as a kid when you're trying to get through a tough situation. Like for example, the way I gravitated toward books. I read books to help me psychologically equip me to deal with what I was dealing with. So it's these are things that I think people do to survive. It's amazing. So, I mean, I, I think the thing is that that's so amazing about that is that you 
you were what 10 you were 12 you were 12 years yeah, old about 12 or 11 yeah and up to that point you thought you were trapped you thought there was no way out and then literally one day you just said we're done we're done here and you got up and you walked out and you stayed out i mean that's amazing and i wonder what did that teach you about how you understood your agency before that moment and how you understood your capacity to make decisions that impact your world after that moment? Well, no one's ever asked me that. Um, actually, what I think it taught me is that there would always be people who would be there to help me. Because mm. um, my brother was there waiting for me and he didn't know. It's funny, the book is out now. So people in my family are reading it and my older brother read it. And he felt bad. He said, I didn't know you were having such a tough time in that foster home. Wow. And I, I get my, my older brother told me, I didn't know you were suffering like that. And I said, you wouldn't know because we were kids and we were afraid to say anything. But what I tried to tell him is that you you rescued me. You helped me. There were always people, no matter how bad the situation was, that were there to help me. I talk about a guy named Mr. Bill early in there. Uh, yes. He was the guy who, guy who stayed at Aunt Fanny. And just the kind of kindness he would show me would help me get through the day. So for me, my story, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like falsely humble. I don't see myself as a particularly like strong person, but I, I, I see myself as somebody who was really helped by a lot of beautiful people, white and black. So can you tell us, white and black, can you tell us about growing up mixed in West Baltimore. So when I grew up in the, um, the 60s, 70s, and up to the early 80s, it was a different experience uh, being biracial. Uh, biracial people were considered like objects of pity, like their children are going to be mixed up, mixed nuts. They're not going to be accepted by any group. There was no Obama, Jordan Peele, Kamala Harris, you know, to feel mm -hmm. proud of. So it was a it was a bad thing. So in my in my world. You wouldn't, you don't want anybody to know that your mom was white. You could literally get your butt kicked. And my younger brother, for example, who was very light skinned, would get attacked uh, and come home bleeding because people suspected that his mom was white. So it was a weird thing where wow. you could, I experienced racism from my mother's side, the white side of the family, didn't want anything to do with black people. But at the same time, I experienced a level of intolerance from black people who really hated white people so much that anybody even reminded them of being white would be attacked. So you, at a very young age, I begin to see the absurdity of, of racism. Wow. You know, I, when I was reading that and also kind of the, what you're doing is you're complexifying our understanding of race in America through the lens of the mixed race child. And it's, it's striking to me that as as a mixed race child, as a black and white child, you literally, like your body falls in the lineage of the very reason that race was constructed on the soil. Like while you did not have that, um, and I understand this, that that's like, I, I mean, let me put it this way. When I was a little girl, mm -hmm. um, I always asked my grandmother, what are we? Because we always looked a little bit mixed with stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was. My grandmother always just said, we're black. Like she was, mm -hmm. we're black and that's it. That's all we are, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is she came from South Carolina. 
and her people came, were enslaved in South Carolina and came up from Virginia, came, were brought down from Virginia. And in that Virginia space, it was very, very mixed. It was, it was white, black, Cherokee, everybody, right? All up in there. And so, but we were black because in order to survive, yeah, you know, she had to be black. And, right, right. and she was, and they were, they very much, they were just literally a part of the community. There was no, we're not part of the community with her. Right. And also my great grandmother loved her, some dark skinned men. And so, right, right, <laughs> so right, that, right. you know, um, and so there was, there was that, but I think that the reality for me then growing up and trying to figure out where are we, where do we fall in this racial caste system that we have in America? And even within the black community, I just really resonated with, the with the really colorism that you raised, which you didn't really name as such, but it was there. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the unique struggle, unique um, challenge? Maybe it's that that's the word. The unique challenge of growing up mixed race inside of the black community. What does that look like? I think it depends on when you grew up and, and, and who you are. So I think it's so much easier today. Yes. And in fact, if you're biracial, it's almost seen as a cool thing because there's so many more examples of biracial people in popular culture. And the truth is, what? Most black people are mixed race. What is it? Hello. 75%. I mean, you could look at the That's different. Right. So, you know, you can see. But in the time I grew up in, um, when, you know, I was born when it was illegal, it was just very tough. It was just like, I felt like I never really had a place that I quite belonged, but, mm-hmm. and, but I still identify with black people. I never had any illusions that white people would accept me because my mother's family pretty much let me know from the very beginning that they wanted nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Th- to me this is, this is how I really view being biracial and because yeah. I've thought, thought about it a lot more to me, the power, one of the powerful things about being right biracial is that to me that we are living proof that ordinary people can remake this country. People who don't seem like they have any power. Let me explain. Yeah. When my, my mother met my father in the mid sixties, polls show that over 90% of Americans oppose interracial marriage today. Gallup took a poll about a year ago. 94% of Americans now approve of interracial marriage. Okay. Wow. And that cuts across political racial lines. Mm. And I asked myself, how did such a dramatic change take place in a lifetime? Because remember, you could get killed as a black man being with a white woman in public. So why, why the change? And what I think part of it is, is because of ordinary people like my mom and dad, they said, you know what? We're not going to wait for politicians or judges to decide this whole notion that people can be classified by race is absurd. I'm going to love who I'm going to love. I'm, I don't care what my family says. I don't care what I have to go through. I'm going to marry and have children with whom who I want to. And when enough people did that, that created a ripple effect. And the politicians and the judges followed. But they, my parents, were part of this vanguard of people in the 60s. That we probably all know people like that. Mm-hmm. who were among the first to have these interracial marriages. They helped create this world that we live in now. So for me, that's the power my mother and father did. They didn't wait for judges. They did it. They created this world we live in now. 
nobody thinks really twice about biracial kids or interracial marriages. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So, John, I was struck that you identify with spirituality oh, as yeah. the force that helped you overcome. Yes. How, can you explain that? So there's this, it's funny you asked that because I've been thinking and talking a lot about this recently mm-hmm. because I've been a journalist for like over 25 years and I've written about race for much of that time. So I've seen a change in the black community and I've seen a sense of hopelessness and despair mm come among us. And I kind of understand it. But the hopelessness is that you can't do anything about racism, that this country will never change. And I always feel like part of our strength, part of our gift, is that we have always been able to have a sort of hope, no matter what we've been going through. To me, to me, you don't survive the middle passage or the barbarity of slavery without having some sign of hope. To me, when you hear those spirituals from the Black church, it does something to you. That's hope. And so to me, my hope to answer your question comes a lot from the faith that I discovered as a kid. So that faith was really indispensable for giving me that hope. But also, when I began to meet the, the, the white members of my family, and I had to struggle with these things like, how do I forgive people? How do I accept people who didn't accept me? Mm-hmm. I had a model for that because when I was in college, I just happened to join this interracial church. And for the first time, I saw white and black and brown people interact, become friends. So when I saw that, that gave me that model, that gave me those spiritual tools, that gave me that language of grace and forgiveness to really reconnect with them. So that's the part that spirituality has helped play. That is so helpful. So now you say in the book that you found this church and that mm-hmm. it showed you the difference between a racially mixed church yes. and a truly integrated church. So yes. what, what's the difference there? a huge difference and a lot of people don't know in a racially mixed church you see black white and brown people in the pews okay mm-hmm. in a racially integrated church you see black brown and black you know white people in the pews but they also share power in one church they share pews in the other they also share power mm-hmm. i was a member of many racially mixed church where if you looked on the white pulpit it was all white men no women, no Hello? people. Yes, this is what I'm and talking the, about. Yeah, and the worship yeah. style, the theology was all Anglo-centric or Eurocentric, whatever word you want to use. And then I joined a church that was racially integrated. I looked on the pews. I saw a black woman. I saw a brown woman. I saw a mixture of people. Even the picture we had of Christ was brown. And he had we had a picture of Christ's disciples. There were women among the men. What? All that, yeah, all that came what, about, what is this? We all need to check it out. What, really, it, literally, what is this church? It's Oakhurst Presbyterian in Atlanta. That's the wow. church I went to that showed me that you can have these kind of places. But those kind of places are difficult. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of negotiation. But it's that's that's the real thing. That to me is the church we saw in the Book of Acts. You know, yes. all those different people, people who were considered slaves, people considered women, suddenly they're leaders in the church. I mean, that's what made Christianity grow because it was so different. So that's what I saw. And that was really helpful when I had to meet my, you know, the white members of my family and deal with all this anger I had. Hmm. OK, so before we move on, because we will, we will go there. 
But before we go there, I really want to I want to dive a little bit more into this truly integrated church and the question of power, mm-hmm. because one of the first of all, that's you are literally like we just we just got to like get together and have coffee and talk a little more. I'm sure <laughs> we would have a lot more to talk about. A lot of what I did back in the 90s and early 2000s was actually leading in racial what they called at the time racial reconciliation um, in uh, in a, an evangelical um, mission agency. Right. And so the difference came, the shift for us came when we began to ask the question, whose house is this anyway? Yeah. That it wasn't just us wanting a more diverse space, right? Like having more black people, more Latino, more Asian people, more white people, or, you know, not more, but keep the white people and get everybody else as well. It was, it was whose house is this? Who has the right to move the furniture? Who has the right to, you know, pitch some of the furniture and bring in new furniture and decide where it goes? Whose name is on the deed? Mm. Like that's when you are talking about power mm-hmm. and you're right. It is difficult. It takes negotiation. But what I found, and I want to hear from you, your experience of this, but what I found is that it's in that space of negotiation, that space of compromise, that space of listening, having to listen in order to be church together, that that's literally where the Holy Spirit shows up. Like that's literally how we encounter actual God. It was mm-hmm. that your experience too? Oh, definitely. I, I um, My experience at this church I talked to you about that was racially integrated, it helped I joke with the pastor who's white. I said, you restored my help, my hope in white people. And it helped me reconnect with my mother's family because here was a guy who was the leader. He wasn't actually, he would not describe himself as a leader of the church. He was a co-leader along with many of the women in the congregation, other people from different perspectives. But here was a guy who grew up in a Jim Crow South who believed when he was a young man that black people were subhuman who absorbed all the racism of that era, but yet things happened in his life where he was forced to be in relationship with black people and that changed him. And to see somebody like that on the pulpit who's relinquishing power, who's sharing power, who's being criticized by black women and saying, you have some racism you got to deal with, and he doesn't leave the church, he wrestles with it. That was a beautiful thing for me to see. And Mm -hmm. he's one of my best friends to this day. So yeah, that's what I experienced. Like you said, that's when you really feel like this Holy Spirit is moving. And that church was so, so popular. Wow. Yeah. Now, I, I since you do, and I want to talk about your white family members and how this church kind of prepared you for the reconciliation process with them. Um, your white, You say in the book that your white family members rejected you at birth. Correct. Um, and so what has... What has this experience in your church and then also the experiences with them taught you about reconciliation and forgiveness? Two things that come to mind immediately. One is that you don't define a person by their worst act. One. Two is that this is going to sound simple, but it's important that people can change, that people Mm -hmm. can change better. I really believe, given my job, that a lot of people believe that people can't change anymore. That if you have this one identity, if you're a racist or you struggle with this, there's nothing that can change you. I used to believe 
You know, why even bother to reach out to somebody who sees the world differently? Because they're not going to change. But what I've seen to answer your question, I've seen people can change and that you can't define them by their works act. And I've seen that specifically with my mother's sister and my mother's father. Wow. Your mother's father. Yeah. The one who beat up your dad when he came to take yeah. your mom for a seat. If you read, the, you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, I can tell you now if you want. But, yeah, he and my mother's sister, uh, particularly my mother's sister, she was this person who in mid-20s, she asked to meet me. And I didn't want to meet her. I'm like, why would you? I want to meet you. You were the one who was a stone-cold racist, wanted nothing to do with me when I was a kid. Where were you when I needed you? But I met her. And for a long time, I was angry at her. I wouldn't really want to deal with her. And then something happened when there was this dramatic incident and it totally changed the way I looked at her and the way I looked at me and our relationship changed after that. And you're just going to have to read the book to know what that was. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind sharing it. You know, I don't mind sharing that story if you want. It's up to you. But uh, no, 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 no. I I want people to read the book. I want them to read the book and I want them to look for that story. That's really, that's really, really good. Wow. So, what you said there were two things. What were the what was the second? Lesson? Well the first one, like like I said, you don't define someone by their worst act and that people too, that people can change. Ah, people yes. like you never thought the most hardened racist, the person you never thought would change, they can change. Can I just say I I think that you as a journalist in particular are in a space where what journalism has been doing really, I mean, I would say probably forever. (laughs) Um, It it, it tries to, um, it simplifies narrative. Yes. And so, especially in America, right, we get the good guys and the bad guys. Yes. And so you begin to see the world as a journalist in terms of who are the good guys in a situation, who are the bad guys. And I think especially in our world right now, where you have this, I mean, a very real move toward fascism, um, yes. among many white Americans, I have, I've, I've sensed, and I am for my, in myself, um, growing hopelessness yes. that these people can change. And, and I, and I think part of it also is, is because of this, um, phenomenon that Dr. King called in his very last book ever, where do we go from here? Chaos or community. He actually has a whole chapter on something he called white lash. Right. Mm -hmm. He says in the aftermath of the racial reckoning of his era, the civil rights movement, America suffered a major white backlash. So, you know, they had they had all those gains. They had all those white people march with them from Selma to Montgomery. Like they had all those white people, a thousand, a thousand white students get on buses and go down for Freedom Summer down into Mississippi and knock on doors and spend spend the summer inside the homes of black people. And then right after the civil rights movement, literally like after the the Voting Rights Act is passed the next year, there's all of this backlash and they start the um, the white power structures begin to whittle away at those gains and and actually detract, like retract some of the gains um, and, and water them down. And so, you know, Dr. King in 1967 was writing about, you know, where do we go from here? And I feel in, in 2020, after America experienced another racial reckoning um, by all measures, um, we are now in the midst of another major white lash. I mean, we have people telling us we can't tell, they would, they might, they might ban your book. 
right? Because you're talking about race and you're talking about history and you can't have those two things together. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, why do you think that we are caught in this never ending cycle that just keeps going? I mean, it doesn't even begin. You, I traced it back to, you know, after the civil, the civil rights movement, but you can go after the civil war, same thing, right? So, so how do we, how do we get out of this cycle? I think part of the way we get out of the cycles is what you do. You talk about the power of narratives and stories. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways we get out, out of it, out of this cycle is, is being careful about the stories we tell. Mm -hmm. um, are we telling stories of hope? Are we, and when I say hope, I gotta be careful what I'm talking about when I say hope. I'm not talking about the Hallmark card hope. Right. I'm talking about something sturdier. Somebody, somebody used the term muscular type of hope. A hope that acknowledges, as you say, that we're going through an awful time. This is yet another white lash, but yet I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on this country. I'm not giving up on people and their ability to change, particularly if you're a Christian. You know, we we follow the person. I mean, one of the, our heroes, people we look up to was a man named Saul who became Paul. Mm. You know, we look at Peter, who was a man who betrayed, uh, even, you know, said, I don't even know I you, Jesus. But he became a rock. So mm. our, our, our heritage, our spiritual heritage is full of people changing. And so I think that God moves throughout histories. And though we're going through this time of white lash, to answer your question, we have to tell better stories of this muscular hope that shows that people can change because and someone asked me, asked me this on uh, during an interview. They said, why well, care about this racial reconciliation story when the world is broken as all the systemic racism. And I said that if we only tell stories that say or imply that racism is permanent in America and that people can't change, what incentive do white people have to try to change? What incentive? We're not giving them any incentive. He's like, nothing matters. I almost feel like that there are some white Americans who are attracted to these stories from black people of hopelessness because it gives them an excuse not to try to do anything, not to change. Mm -hmm. So anyway, to answer your question, I do feel like we have to tell these stories of muscular hope that show people changing. And that's part of what I tried to do, I hope to do in, with my story. Can you tell us, can you tell us the story of, forgiveness for yourself with your family? Like, how did you, how did you navigate that? Well, I, I, I'll answer it with the story. Mm -hmm. So I talk about my aunt Mary, this is my mother's sister. And this is somebody who was like, I heard stories about her coming up. Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary, your mother's sister, she can't stand blacks. And I just hated her before I met her. And then when I met her, I thought she wanted to apologize for her racism. And she didn't. All she wanted to do is show me pictures of my mother's family. I'm like, I didn't meet you for that. So that only deepened my anger. And I'm a journalist now. And I'm writing all about how white people deny racism. And I'm seeing it in her. So for a long time, I really wouldn't talk to her. And she would write me all these letters. And I stopped opening them because I didn't want to hear them. I wanted to hear an apology. So one day, I go to a Lowe's home improvement store. And this is the most unexpected place for a racial racial awakening and i want to buy some paint for my deck i see a black man and a white man behind the counter the white man is on the phone and the black man is free i wait for about five or ten minutes until the white man the white employee is free 
Then I go up to him and I ask him, what's the correct paint for my deck that I want to paint? And I take it home and I pour it into a tray and it's the wrong color. And then it hits me. I just racially profiled that black man. I assumed that the white man was more competent. And I'm like looking around on my study and I got all these books by Kendi and Robert D'Angelo. I've written all these stories about bias and racism. And I'm like, and I'm a black man, but I did this to a black person. I was like, this is how powerful in the city it's racism is. But what it did, it also humbled me. And I said, you know what? Let me try to go easy on my aunt. Let me start reading some of these letters that she sent me. So I went to my office and I opened up all these letters one by one. And I began to read it from my aunt Mary. And what did I see? Everything that I wanted from her was already in those letters. She was apologizing for her racism, oh confessing, saying that I just grew up in this all white world. I didn't know any better. If you don't want to have anything to do with me, you know, I, 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 I understand. But she did more than apologize. You know, she made me a beneficiary in her will. She did all these things. And I didn't even see it because I was so angry. I didn't think she could change. And so that humbled me. So I was like, you know what? It's easier to forgive people when you start to see that some of that stuff is in you too. And I think that's part of Christian faith, you know, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's my attempt to try to answer your question. How do you forgive? You start to see that what's in other people is kind of in you. And that if I grew up in a similar circumstances in an all white world, I didn't know any black people in a segregated America, I would probably believe a lot of the same stuff she did. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And the Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia and wherever our guests are laying their heads at night. And this episode was engineered and edited and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. Now, you can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us, and stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which are on Substack. Somebody say Substack. (laughs) So look for Freedom Road on Substack, and you will not be disappointed. There's lots of really great content coming out every week. We promise we will not flood your inbox. So we invite you to listen again um, and join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are a patron, hello, Patreon people, and or if you are on Substack, a paid subscriber, then you get a little special treat. You get a backstage conversation with John Blake.